But great to have all of you with us this morning. We have reached chapter 4 in our study of the book of Philippians. Uh, I think most of you remember that the chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles are not part of the inspired text. Uh, The chapter and verse divisions were added about 500 years ago after the invention of the printing press. Uh, The printing press made copies of the Bible accessible uh, to so many more people uh, that Bible students were looking for ways to make it easier for the common man to study the Scripture. So Bible printing was kind of coupled with Bible translating, and chapter and verse divisions developed over a few generations into the current divisions that, uh, that we now have. And when the chapter and verse divisions were developed, they tried to make the chapter divisions fit the text, uh, meaning that new topics or transitions to new topics usually warranted a new chapter. And they did a pretty good job of that. There are a few places where the chapter or verse divisions may seem a little out of place, but generally it's a good breaking point in the text. Uh, But it's good to remember as you are reading your Bible that the Holy Spirit did not inspire Paul to write this letter or any of the other letters in chapter and verse form. Uh, So we always want to view Philippians as well as other scriptures as one unit, as one whole letter, even though we are breaking it up into little bite-sized pieces as we kind of study our way through it. And I remind you of that this morning because we're moving into a new chapter. And the Apostle Paul does change tracks a little bit. Uh, The break in the chapter division is at a good spot. And he begins with personal challenges to the church. And then he thanks them for their gift to him. And he closes out his letter at the end of chapter 4 with some personal greetings. We're going to read uh, today the first section of chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Uh, You know that we cannot possibly cover all nine verses today, particularly these nine verses, which are jam-packed with challenges for us. But we will consider them as a teaching unit. They all go, go together, and we'll be looking at them for the next few weeks. So let's read them together. You can follow along as I read Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren... My joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. I believe one of the greatest challenges for all of us 
is to be spiritually consistent. Presuming that a person truly knows the Lord as their Savior and truly has a desire to serve Him, I, I am convinced that one of the greatest challenges for us is to live a consistent spiritual life. We are surrounded by a world that's constantly enticing us to draw us away from the Lord Jesus. Uh, the distractions and the enticements of the world are very strong. And unless we live in a little bubble somewhere, like the ancient monks who locked themselves away from the world, we're going to have to face those challenges. And you know, it didn't actually work for the ancient monks either, because they soon realized that even in seclusion, we are always battling the weaknesses of our own flesh as the Apostle Paul described in Romans chapter 7, when he said, the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things I want to do, I struggle to do. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And although we grow in grace and we increase in sanctification, but we do continue to battle the weaknesses of our flesh. We also have the devil, and we have demonic forces of hell that are seeking to destroy us. The Lord Jesus said in the Gospels to the Apostle Peter, He said, Satan has desired you to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Peter later wrote that the, that the, that the devil is prowling around like, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So, so with the world and the flesh and the devil against us, you can imagine that consistency would be a significant challenge. Certainly not an impossible challenge through the power of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit, but, but, but a very real challenge. And our, our knowledge of God's Word can be very helpful, but even in our Bible knowledge, there is often a, a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we actually live. There, there's an unfortunate divide between our, our academic knowledge of the Scripture and our day-to-day street-level living. And this is not a new problem. This concept of, of being stable, spiritually stable, being spiritually consistent. No, nothing new about that. Look with me back all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis in chapter 49, there's a very interesting statement that Jacob makes. Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is dying. And he gathers his twelve sons together to kind of give them some prophetic thoughts about what God has revealed to him about his sons. The entire chapter we aren't going to read, obviously he deals with all of those things regarding his sons. But look at verse 2. Genesis 49 verse 2, he says, Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Now Jacob is almost, he died at 147, so he's getting awfully close to that age. But look what he says about Reuben, his firstborn. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Then look at that phrase, unstable as water. You shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. He says, Reuben, you're my firstborn. You're the, you're the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and power. He had all the rights of the firstborn son. But he says, unstable as water, you will not excel. He had, Reuben had unequaled privilege 
unequaled opportunity as the firstborn, and he forfeited all of it because he was unstable. Specifically what he did, and Jacob mentions it, he committed fornication with one of his father's concubines in his father's own house, in his father's own bed. That story's in Genesis 35. So he disqualified himself from being the family leader and as the firstborn. <coughs> Excuse me. That family leader as the firstborn and his, and his father said, you will not excel. You won't remain in that influential firstborn position because you blew it and you are unstable. Then go to the other end of the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter in chapter 2. Peter is kind of blasting away at false teachers here in this passage. But he makes a very interesting statement. Second Peter chapter 2. We're going to start to read in verse 12. Just read a couple of verses there. Second Peter 2, starting in verse 12. We'll read up into verse 14. But these, and the these he's talking about, if you look at the context, are false teachers, teachers who are not teaching the truth about Jesus. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Interestingly, right in the middle of his, of his blast of these false teachers as being spots and blemishes and living by their own deceptions, he says they entice unstable souls. So he says it, it, is, it is unstable souls who fall for the deception of the false teachers. They fall for immoral lifestyles. And I assure you, in my observations of false teachers down through the last several decades, false teachers target people who are unstable. They, they target people who are weak in their faith. They target people who don't understand the scriptures. That's who they aim for. That's who they appeal to. And so Peter says these unstable souls are enticed by these false teachers. Turn one page over to chapter 3 of, of 2 Peter. It's probably, you're probably just one page away. And look what Peter says. You might be two pages away if you have a study Bible with lots of notes. 2 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse 14. Right near the end of the chapter, he says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, that is, the coming of Christ, if you look at the context, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blemish, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, and also in all his epistles, speaking in them, uh, in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, but notice this next phrase, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures." Peter challenges his readers 
to be diligent, to be found by the Lord Jesus without spot or bla- or, and, and also blameless. But notice he says, unstable people twist the scriptures to their own destruction. The untaught and the unstable look at a verse and they twist it out of its context and they make it mean something it's not supposed to mean. And he says it ruins them. It ruins their testimony. It ruins their relationships. It ruins their walk with the Lord. It makes a mess of their lives. So I say again that I am convinced that one of the greatest challenges for us is to live a consistent spiritual life. Instability or inconsistency is the downfall of many, many followers of Jesus. You can choose either word. If you're spiritually unstable, you won't be consistent. If you're not consistent, or if you are consistent, it's because you are spiritually stable. So whichever word you want to choose, that's the issue that the Apostle Paul is addressing in these first nine verses in Philippians 4. Spiritual stability. Spiritual consistency. And what what does that actually look like? Paul kind of defines it. We're just going to spend our time sort of taking apart some of the thoughts here in in, in verse 1 today. and And we'll look at the spiritually stable life in these coming weeks as we look at these these nine verses. Notice there in verse 1, back in Philippians 4. The first thing he says, Therefore, and you know, as we always say, when you see a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. Therefore means that what I'm about to say is built on the foundation of what I just said. Because of this, therefore, believe this. So if you were to summarize the third chapter, we could summarize it this way, and I know that you remember it well, many of you have been following along with us in these for several weeks. Uh, Chapter 3, Paul said, we are pursuing Christ-likeness. It's the goal, it's the prize of our Christian life. We're waiting for that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We're waiting for the day when we, as citizens of heaven, will meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be transformed with with a new body like the resurrection body of our Lord. So Paul says, because of that truth, because we are pursuing Christ-likeness, because we are already citizens of heaven, that is our real, ultimate, final home. Therefore, he says, stand fast in the Lord. Meaning, plant your feet and stand firm. Plant your feet and be fastened to the Lord. He says, stand fast in the Lord. Did Christ stand firm? Well, of course he did. Did he ever waver? No, he did not. Did he ever compromise? No, he did not. Did he ever sin? No, he did not. The Apostle Peter clearly said he knew no sin in 1 Peter 2. He was without sin. He was our perfect high priest. Hebrews chapter 7 says he was pure and holy and separate from sinners. Jesus Christ is, is, the, is the model. He stood firm right to the end. Was he persecuted? Of course he was. Did he ever compromise? No, he did not. Was he tempted? Yes. Did he sin? No. He was put through all kinds of trials of life. And yet he never crumbled under those trials. He never collapsed. He always stood firm. And so since he's the prize and goal of our life, and since we are citizens of heaven, and, and since someday we're going to be like him, so that's our present pursuit, following the Lord, therefore we have to do what he did. We have to stand firm. Plant your feet and be fastened to the Lord. Stand your ground for the Lord Jesus. 
Students of the New, of New Testament Greek tell us this is, a, this is a common military term, which shouldn't surprise us. It even sounds like a military command. Stand firm, plant your feet, don't back up, don't give in, don't back down. The actual Greek word even kind of has a commanding sound. It's, it's stakate. You can imagine the, the uh, uh, a Roman uh, commander riding his horse behind the troops and they're going into battle and, and, and the enemy surges forward and he rides back and forth yelling, Stakate! Stakate! I mean, stand firm, stand firm. It even has that sound to it. So he says, you, you stand firm. It, it's an imperative in the New Testament Greek. An imperative means an order, a command. It, 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 it's a present tense imperative. So stand firm, and he says just keep standing firm. Actually, in these nine verses, there are actually nine present tense imperatives in verses 1 through 9, which we're going to see in coming weeks. Uh, so, so Paul is, is he's exercising his apostolic authority here. You must do this, he says. It, it is imperative. It is absolutely necessary. Uh, that is a command from the Lord Jesus who we're trying to please and follow. He is our captain. He is our commander. So stand fast in the Lord. But note secondly that Paul, he's not just exercising apostolic authority. He's also expressing his pastor's heart. Paul was, was a logical, academic intellectual. He was brilliant. He was highly educated. He was fluent in several languages. When you read his story in the book of Acts, and you read his letters to the churches he planted, you kind of get the idea that the Apostle Paul was a type A go-getter. And, and he was indeed. He just never, never gave up. Look at 2 Corinthians 11 for a moment. I have mentioned these verses occasionally to you, but I want you to see them. 2 Corinthians 11. Paul is talking about some of the problems and the struggles that he has gone through in his apostolic journeys. 2 Corinthians and chapter 11. And some people were saying he wasn't really a minister of Christ. But uh, look at verse 23 down near the end of the chapter. Listen to what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. And listen to this, from the Jews... Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So why do they say it like that? Well, in the Old Testament law, they weren't, supposed to, they weren't supposed to give anybody more than 40 lashes. And so when they're giving somebody, when they tie somebody to a post and, they, and, and they're whipping them with these whips, uh, they didn't want to violate the law of Moses by accidentally going over 40, and so they stopped at 49 just in case somebody had miscounted. And so it's always listed that way, 40 stripes minus one. Now, so, so five different times, Paul got tied to a post and stripped and whipped. Five different times, 39 lashes. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. They tie you to a post, they take these big, long, flexible, kind of thin uh, rods, and, and, and so it has some flex to it. You think of it like a, like a fishing rod, uh, and, and, and they, just, they just pound on you with that until they get tired of it. 
Three times he was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. You remember that story in Lystra? Stoned him and left him for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, a night and the day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches." Doesn't quite sound like your best life now, does it? And so Paul, when he says, My beloved brethren, stand firm. <laughs> you think, wow. Look at the Apostle Paul. Five times he's whipped 39 lashes. Three times he's beaten with rods. Three times he's shipwrecked. He's thrown in jail and knocked around. Slammed, every, everywhere he went. And yet he says, never give up, never give up, never give up. My beloved brethren, never give up. But not only is he challenging them with this apostolic authority, he's expressing his pastor's heart. Because notice he says, he calls the Philippians, he uses four different names for them. He calls them my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown. He says he, he is motivated to, in fact, he is motivated by the love of Christ. You may remember him writing in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ constrains me, meaning it compels me, it motivates me. Not Paul's love for Christ, but Christ's love for Paul. Because he goes on to say in that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, in that passage, that because Christ died for us, we should not live for ourselves, we should live for Him. So Paul, motivated by the love of Christ, challenges this church with all of the pastoral compassion that one could express. And he calls his Philippian brethren four endearing terms. First he says, beloved. That word just means well-loved. It means they're in a special class of people. They're the only ones that you feel this way about. That's how the term beloved is used. Jesus used it. Some of the apostles used it. It, it. it means you folks are in a special class of loved people. The next phrase he says, longed for. That means deeply desired. There is this intense longing for, to yearn for. He wants to see them. He wants to see God bless them. He wants to see God use their life. He yearns for them. The third thing he calls them is my joy. Word simply means delight. He said you, they are his delight. They make his heart glad. He said you, 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 you bless me. And then he called them my crown. Two different words in the Greek New Testament for crown. One is diadema. We get our English word diadem from that. You know, that's, that's kind of the crown like a king would wear, fulfilled with jewels and gold and so forth. This is not the diadem. This one is called the stephanos. It is the, it, it is the circle of leaves on a small branch that would be placed on the heads of Olympic champions. Uh, a reward for running the race well. You see this word numerous times in the, in the New Testament. It's always used as a picture of our rewards when we stand before the Lord. 
Usually it was a laurel wreath made from a laurel tree, a just small laurel branch. And it was not only given to Olympic winners, but also given to an honored guest at a gathering or some big feast. So Paul says, my beloved, my longed for brethren, my joy, my crown. Paul is telling them, you're all special to me. You're in a class all by yourselves. I'm deeply moved by your friendship. I want the best for you. You, you. you bless me. You make my heart glad every time I think of you. You are like a reward to me for my labors for the Lord Jesus. And you know, I do have to say this. You know, you know every single person who has ever spoken here in this church, filling in for me when I'm away, every single one of them without fail, they always comment to me on how terrific you folks are. You know that? They love coming here. They love you folks. They love filling in for me. Yeah, because you have a testimony of, of friendliness and graciousness to visiting speakers. And you know, that's, that's like a laurel wreath to me. Just makes me so thankful and blessed that God has allowed me to be your shepherd all these years. You are, you are my joy and my Stephanos, my, my reward. So, so standing firm, being consistent and spiritually stable, it's all over the letters of Paul. We see it in the letters of Peter, James, and John, and Jude. Jesus spoke of it. it it's a powerful, consistent theme throughout the Bible. Be steadfast, be consistent, be stable. You know, one of the fastest land animals on the planet is the cheetah. An adult cheetah can sprint at speeds of up to 70 miles an hour. But they can't last very long. If they don't catch their prey on the first sprint, they have to quit. The reason for that is they have a relatively small heart for their body size. So they tire quickly. They can really explode and sprint, but they can't go much distance. Many of the Lord's people seem to have the same kind of issues. They've got great energy, great zeal, but they don't have the heart to last in the race. And I assure you, folks, we don't, we don't need more speed. We need more stamina. When it comes to our spiritual life, we don't need more speed. We need more stamina. We need, we need a bigger heart for God. Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are surrounded by distractions. We are surrounded by things that pull us away from you. This world is filled with them. Our hearts are filled with them. As an old time theologian said several hundred years ago, our hearts are factories of idols. We just keep producing them. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the stamina, the determination to continue to walk a consistent, stable life for the Lord Jesus Christ week after week, month after month, year after year. May we plant our feet in the truth of the Scripture. May we plant our hearts in the love of God. And may you help us to stand fast in the Lord. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.